what, I was about to, I had to hold on to my seat there, I was about to pop out of it as they were singing that. Those songs, the songs that we sing, uh, thank you Zach, thank you praise team for leading us in worship. Those songs that we sing are true words, Jesus Christ is our living hope, amen? Yeah. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning, Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Uh, we will be continuing our vision series together. Over the past three and a half weeks, this is now week number four, uh, that we are looking at kind of this idea. As a church body, what is it that we're going to be about? What are the things that we are saying truly matter and need our time, attention, and effort? If we're going to be the people that God is calling us to be individually, if we're going to be the church that God is calling us to be, what is it that we should give ourselves to? And so we're asking um, God to clarify from His Word what it is that we should be focusing on, and that's the heart of this vision series. And so four weeks ago, we started with the idea of worship, just very simply saying this, if we're going to have a vision, we need to start with God. We need to start with looking at Him. And so the idea then is that we need to worship God together. We need to come together as God's people. We need to receive and reflect His glory. We need to honor God. We need to see Him clearly. And so that is kind of captivated by this idea of love. If we can go ahead and get the the kind of the funnel picture one more time on the screen. But it's love, that we need to love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, with all that we are. And so that we would come here on Sunday mornings and we would start here in a worship service. And then Uh, The next thing we talked about the following week was live, living life in authentic community. Uh, It's very clear that God has made us for relationships. It's not enough just to come to church and sit in an audience and be invisible in a crowd. We desire and need relationships in our lives. And, And we very simply believe this, as Christians, we should be the best at providing authentic community and relationship to one another. Um, It may not always work out that way, but we should be because we are filled with the love of God in our hearts. And so we believe that life groups are necessary, are important in what we do here at Riverview Baptist Church. And then uh, last week we looked at this idea of growing. And, And the main idea there is discipleship. You see, training for ministry. But the idea is this. God has given us something to do. God has saved us from something, sin, and He has saved us for something, to know Him and walk with Him and pass that on to other people. And that process is called discipleship. Go and make disciples, Jesus said. And so that is worked out in our lives kind of with two big ideas. Number one, abiding in Christ, that we would live with Him and we're filled up with His Holy Spirit. And then as we do that, we don't just hold it to ourselves, we share it with others. And so whether that is another Christian that I'm intentionally investing in, whether that's a lost person, all of this is part of the disciple-making process, helping people come to take their next step in Jesus Christ. And so we looked at abiding in Jesus, and then we are called, Jesus says, my Father is glorified in this, that you bear fruit in John 15. So we're called to bear fruit, and we believe that bearing fruit looks like working out the fruit of the Spirit, but then also Bearing fruit and making disciples, finding people to be intentional about investing our lives in. And so this week, we're kind of looking at then the next step is going. And we're going to see in Romans 1.16 what that might look like. Romans 1.16 is famously known as kind of the thesis statement of the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is considered by many scholars to be the greatest explanation of the gospel ever put on paper. 
It is a book filled with the gospel. What we need, our problem, our sin issue, is what is displayed early. Then how we can receive it by grace through faith. And then how we can walk and live in that faith as a Christian. And what that should look like and how that should change our lives starting in chapter 12 in practical ways. The ways that that should transform us. And we should live out our faith in our daily lives. And so today we're going to focus on this thesis statement, Romans 1.16. And really there's a lot that we could, could unpack here. We don't have time to unpack everything that's in this one verse. But we will focus on this idea. It's very easy for us. A lot of times I think we, we kind of misspeak when we talk about church. We all know this truth in our heads, but I think it's good to be reminded of this. We talk about church, and we say, I'm going to church today. And it's very easy for us to begin to think of church as a place. The church is these four walls in this room. But the reality is we know that's not true. That church is the people. Church is the body of Christ, the people that know Jesus Christ personally as their Lord and Savior. And so someday, if this building ever burns down, Riverview Baptist Church is going to keep going on, right? We are the church And so these first three pieces focus a little bit inwardly, but today we're kind of shifting to start thinking about what are we doing outwardly as a church. Very simply this, we are gathered here and we are present now as the church in this room, but Monday through Saturday, if we are not present here, where is the church present? Out there. We are present in our community, Monday through Saturday, as Riverview Baptist Church, each and every one of us that are members here and know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so the question then is this. What impact is Riverview Baptist Church having in our community? How are we engaging our community? And so we need to talk about some strategy, and we'll do that. But more importantly, we're going to see, I think, the, the absolute key to engaging our communities well in Romans 1.16, okay? So let's go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. We're just going to read one verse together. The Word of the Lord says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now, and Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful. God, we thank you that it is living and active. God, that you use it to shape us and form us. You you use it to draw us to salvation. And so God, as we come now and as we open your word, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and lifted up. We pray that our hearts would be pierced, that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. And this morning, we're going to really kind of focus on the very first phrase of Romans 1.16 together. We're going to look at the other pieces, but we're going to really focus on the very first phrase. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see, I think many of us want to be able to agree with Paul when we read that passage. We want to be able to agree But I think if we're honest in our heart of hearts, we may not always say this out loud. We may, in fact, be in some ways embarrassed to say this out loud. But the way that it often works out in our daily lives is that at times we are ashamed. There are times when we could speak, when there are times when we could share the gospel, and we let the moment pass. 
You see, there's times where we know that we could be bold and, and we don't always live out as boldly as we could or should. And so the question then is why? And so I just want us to begin to think about two questions this morning. What does it look like to be unashamed? And then secondly, how can I be unashamed? I was 19 years old and uh, had just become a part-time youth pastor in Liberty, Mississippi, my first ministry position. Uh, Liberty, Mississippi, if you've never been there, has two stoplights, a roaring metropolis. And so I started my ministry career there, and there were five teenagers a part of that youth ministry, and I had the joy of pouring into them. But I also had the joy of learning much as I was there at 19 years old in ministry. And after having been youth pastor for about four weeks, my family and I took a vacation. We went to Colorado and uh, went skiing, and for the very first time, we were up there on the mountain skiing. And, and like most 19-year-olds on vacation, I was concerned with one person while I was out there, and that person was me. And so I'm out on the ski slopes, and I'm, I'm having a good time. Uh, and Dad knew that we had no experience whatsoever, a bunch of Mississippians on the mountain. And so he paid for us to get some ski lessons. And he had two days of lessons. And the, the individual that gave us lessons was a really fascinating guy. He's one of these guys that, that kind of grew up in the 60s and never came out of it, if you know what I'm talking about. He decided to, to just kind of stay there. And so he's at the mountains. And, um, but he was incredibly relational, incredibly relational man. And he said this, he said, here's one of the things I want to do. I'm going to teach you to ski, but I also want to invest in you. We thought, okay, that's interesting. And he said, I want to get to know each and every one of you personally. And so what I'm going to do, we've got two days together. As we're training, I'm going to ride this, the, the ski lift up with each of you individually. And I want to hear your story, and I want to share my story with you, and I want to get to know you in a, in a more personal and intimate way. And I believe that'll help me coach you better. That'll help me be a better instructor. And so dad went first, and, and then mom, and then little brother, and then on the next day, the next day, little sister went twice, and so I kind of made it the first day, and I made it through the morning, and I made it kind of into the afternoon. I'm thinking, I'm about to, I'm going to get off the hook. I don't have to do this. That'll be great, and right towards the end of the day, on the last run down the mountain, he says, Michael, let's ride up the lift together. So we go up the lift, and we're kind of making small talk, and then suddenly the small talk ends, and he says this, he says, hey, Michael, you see, he knew, I guess from talking to my parents, that I was a youth pastor part-time. And he says, hey, Michael, I want to know something. I want to know what you believe. And in that moment, I knew exactly what he meant. He wasn't talking about, I want to know what you believe about the best way to, to bake a cake, or I want to know what you believe about who's the best football team. He was saying, I want to know what you believe about God. And he began to go into this little kind of spiel about how he's here and he's been at the mountains for a long time and he knows the mountains were here long uh, before he was ever here and he knows the mountains will be here long after he's gone and he's wondering who it is or how it is that the mountains came to be here. And so perhaps there's, there's not been an easier or more open situation for someone to unashamedly share the gospel but the way that this worked out in my life as a 19-year-old boy who had not been trained and, and had honestly uh, been raised in church and, and, and in some ways taken the gospel message for granted is this. It didn't work out where I was unashamed. I kind of stammered and stuttered and muttered my way through some sort of very unclear gospel presentation that he needed Jesus and Jesus died for him and that Jesus rose again so that he could know God. And, and, and about 15 or 20-minute ride up the slope, right as we're arriving, I've kind of sort of finished 
and then just redirected the conversation as quickly as I could. And God used that moment in my life in a really powerful way. He used that moment to show me very simply this, Michael, you weren't, because I knew Romans 1.16, in fact, I had it memorized, you weren't as unashamed as you thought you'd be. So next time, what are you going to be doing differently? What are you going to do differently? And I realized, Lord, I don't ever want to have that experience again. Not because it was so embarrassing. It honestly wasn't that bad. But I don't want to have that experience again because I don't ever want to be ashamed of my Jesus. I don't ever want to be ashamed of the one who died and rose for me. And so I began to study and I began to think and I began to look more carefully into how to present the gospel. And I even went back in realizing how poorly I had done. I tried to find this man and track him down and write him a letter and just explain hey, forgive me, I didn't have it all together that day. I was kind of on vacation and zoned out and and ill-prepared. But what I want us to do this morning is just to look then at this question, how can we live unashamed? How can we live unashamed? What does it look like? Let's look at the first question. What does it look like to be unashamed? I think Paul has a, a very specific idea when he says this idea of unashamed. I believe, firstly, that this idea of of shame is associated with two major words, generally two words. Number one, the word is embarrassment, and then secondly is guilt. And so if we're going to be unashamed as we present the gospel, there needs to be two qualities that mark us as believers. Number one, we need to be without embarrassment, and we need to be without guilt. And I want to kind of unpack that even a little bit further. You see, embarrassment is rooted in self-attention, and self-focus, and self-sufficiency, and self-saving. It is about me. It is about my way, and my thoughts, and my pride, and my image. And it is the natural operating procedure of every person on the planet that we would go around collecting honor, collecting glory, collecting an image for ourselves, building ourselves up. And so what happens is, is very simply this. We're trained early in life. We get awards and trophies as we play sports. We get Things, we get medals and, and, and uh, we get uh, grades as we go through high school and into college. We graduate with honor, right? Summa cum laude. And so there are these ideas that we are almost taught without actually ever being maybe expressly said that you have an image, you have a, a picture, a portrayal of yourself that matters and you need to protect that and you need to guard that. But Jesus calls us to lay it down when we follow him. You see, Paul had reason to be shamed. As Paul went on his missionary journeys many times, he was taken and he was stripped of his clothes and he was beaten and he was made a spectacle of. He oftentimes was put into situations and places that would be considered very shameful, someone that you don't want to be around, someone that you don't want to associate with. And Paul still says in Romans 1.16, towards the end of his ministry, I don't care, I'm unashamed. You see, babies are very different than adults in many ways. I, uh, I have a baby in my home right now, and he is teaching me a lot, and so I talk about him a lot. Uh, his name is John. And like I've said, he's about nine months old at this point. But one of the, the many differences, um, there, like I said, there are many differences. Most of are physical. But one of the big differences is actually internal and, and intrinsic, excuse me, intrinsic. You see, John doesn't care what people think. 
He doesn't care what I think. He doesn't care what you think. The president of the United States could walk into this room, and if he's having a bad day, John's going to let him know about it, right? Because he doesn't care. You see, John will eat dinner, and as he is eating his dinner, he will get food all over his face. He'll rub it around and smear it around. He'll get food on me, and if you're with us, he'll get food on you, and he will not apologize because he doesn't care what you think. And in some ways, it's kind of maddening. In some ways, it can drive you crazy, but in other ways, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's good. It's right because, yes, we need to have manners. Yes, we need to be polite, and yes, we need to be considerate of others. But just like a child, childlike faith, we should not be overly consumed with what other people think. We should certainly not be so consumed with what other people think that we are afraid or ashamed to live out the authentic Christian life that Jesus has given us and called us to. We recently had VBS here at um, Riverview a couple of weeks ago, and, and one of my favorite things about VBS is getting to share the gospel with children. We don't just share the gospel in a public setting as people, as children kind of respond. We have conversations with them one-on-one to try to see where they're at. And and if the Lord is is moving and working in their hearts, then they might be ready. Then oftentimes we'll contact mom and dad and and try to give them the privilege of leading their child to Christ. Um, Or we'll lead them to Christ if they're ready. But one of the things that I love about ministering to children is this. When you minister to children and you're sharing the gospel, there's very little effort to save face. There's very little pretense. The children look at you in the eye as you share the gospel and they ask things like this. They say, what is sin? And there it is. You get to talk about it. They say, how can I be saved? What is is so bad about hell? Very simple, authentic genuine questions, and and we have the privilege of just talking with them. But you know what? It's different when you share with adults. It's different. There's kind of this pretense. There's this, this posturing. Well, I know that, and I don't really need you to talk to me about this because I've already got that figured out. I've got it all together, and so I know that's good for you, maybe not so good for me. There's a lot of this kind of conversation that happens. And one of the things that I believe is happening even on the the person who's sharing a lot of times when we're sharing the gospel is that really if we're being honest what we're doing in those moments is we're preoccupied with ourselves rather than being preoccupied with jesus we're preoccupied with us and i believe it's one of the main reasons that american christians don't share the gospel is because we are preoccupied with ourselves and here's what i mean by that here's what that looks like we ask this question what if i What if I get asked a question and I don't know the answer? What if I find myself in a situation and I just don't know what to say? What if I share the gospel and I upset someone at work? What if I share the gospel and I offend a family member? What if I, what if I, what if I? When what we should be saying, what we should be doing is saying, what if Jesus? What if Jesus uses me to communicate the gospel and he saves somebody today? What if Jesus uses my words to help someone take their next step in knowing Christ? What if Jesus does a miracle today? What if I get to be a part of that? What if Jesus? And see, we are preoccupied with ourselves. There's a statistic that says something like this, that most American Christians, after they've been saved for about two years, they'll share seven or eight times early on, and after about two years from being saved, the vast, vast majority, over 70%, never share the gospel again. Why? Because we're preoccupied with us. 
And so we must come to a place in our lives where we quit saying, what if I? And we say, I'm not going to be embarrassed. What if Jesus? Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who moves, and I want to be a part of that. And so to be unashamed, we must be without embarrassment. To be unashamed, we must also be without guilt. We must be without guilt. And that is incredibly important. You see, guilt causes shame. Guilt causes shame. Make no mistake about it. There is a reason that those who are addicted to pornography find it so hard to come forward and confess their sin and have it dealt with. There's a reason. Why? Because they're aware of their guilt. And it causes shame. And they believe a lie. And the lie is this. The lie is this. It will be better and easier and safer for me to hold on to my secret sin and keep it guarded and just live in the misery of my sin than it will be to confess it and deal with it and find freedom in Jesus. And here's what I want to say to you today, friend. If you're here and you're dealing with some secret sin, know this. You're not going to find condemnation here. You're not going to find condemnation, not because... Maybe you don't deserve condemnation. We all do. We're all sinners. But you're not going to find condemnation because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because he died. And because he rose again. And because any who would believe in him will not perish but find everlasting life. Because he died and in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation. And so we can find freedom from our guilt, from our shame, precisely Because Jesus was not ashamed of you and me. You see, Jesus also was shamed. Jesus went to the cross. And the Bible tells us that he scorned its shame. He went in spite of the shame of the cross. The cross was a very shameful, embarrassing thing. It was a place where criminals and outcasts and miscreants were killed. It was a place where they were stripped of their clothing. Why? to embarrass them, to make a mockery of them. Jesus had his beard plucked. He was called names. He was spat upon. He was considered a scourge for you and for me. You see, we don't have to be ashamed. Most importantly, because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to be ashamed before God. His bearing of my sin is what sets me free. And listen, friend, if I can stand before God Almighty and be unashamed... If I can be guilt-free because of what Jesus has done for me, then I can absolutely go and talk to people and be unashamed and be guilt-free. Jesus died so that I would have the power to do that. And so we have to look inside ourselves and ask this question, am I holding on to some sort of guilt in my past? Am I holding on to some sort of sin? Or maybe is there a secret sin that I need to lay down at the foot of the cross because Jesus died so that I could be guilt-free? And if I'm going to share unashamedly, if I'm going to share authentically, then I need to to make sure that I have dealt with my guilt problem and have that laid down at the foot of the cross. Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, through the, the Apostle Paul, same writer, he says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same word that he when he says power of God in Romans 1.16. That first part, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. A part of being a Christian as we mature is having a willingness to say something like this. At the end of the day, I don't care what people think. 
Not because I'm better, not because I'm prideful, not because of any of these things. I don't care what people think because the message of the gospel is the power of God, period. And I know that it has changed me, and I know that it can change others that I love and care about. And so, yes, people will tell you that you're wrong. Yes, people will tell you that you're living in blind faith. People will tell you you don't know what you're talking about. People will tell you to be quiet because the gospel is offensive. But what you need to be able to do, friend, what I need to be able to do is say this. I know it's the power of God. I know it has changed my life. And I will not be quiet because I can't be. This is what it looks like to stand unashamed. Galatians 1.10, Paul, the same writer. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You see, there comes a point in our lives as we mature in him and as we walk with him, we understand what really matters is what Jesus thinks. And so I'm not as concerned about what men may say. When I stand before Jesus, I also want to be unashamed. So we must have our guilt dealt with and we must ask ourselves, am I wrestling with embarrassment? And if I am, then we too need to lay that down at the foot of the cross. So not only do we need to look at what does it look like to be unashamed, we also need to ask this question in verse 16. How can I practically be unashamed? What are some things that I can do to participate with God? God has done much for me to help me be unashamed of Him. How can I participate with Him practically to be unashamed? And I've already alluded to one of them. The first idea is this. We need to recognize and rest in the power of God. We need to recognize and rest in the power of God. Look at Romans 1.16. So we dealt with the first phrase, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Secondly, it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's an important word. Again, he says it in 1 Corinthians 1.18, and he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same word. He uses it at a few other points in the New Testament. The idea is this. The Greek word that is being used is the word dunamis, dunamis. And it's where we get our word dynamite. Dynamite is explosive. Dynamite is powerful. If used wrongly, dynamite will hurt you. And the same, in many ways, is true of the power of God. God is has a power that is different than ours. And we need to rest in that. You see, men, we can do a lot of things. God has given us a lot of power. Our dominion over the earth is displayed in many ways. We can build skyscrapers. We can often dig to some of the deepest depths of our planet. We've explored outer space. We have done some incredible things that display the power of men. But God's power is infinitely better. The Bible tells us that it is so much more than our power. The Bible says, yes, we can build stuff, but guess what? We have to start with something. We have to have some things to start with to help us build. You want to build a home? You need some wood, right? You want to build a home? You need some concrete. You need some materials. Guess what God does? God builds things too, and when he does, he just speaks. You see, that's different. You see, we have some power. We can, I, I can get a gun or, or we could get you know, some bombs and we could, we could kill people and we could hurt a lot of people and do some horrible things. That's power. But God has a different kind of power. Not only 
Can God kill the body and the soul, right? God says, fear me because I can do that. But guess what? God also has the power to do this. God has the power to give life. When Jesus stood at Lazarus' grave, he said two words. Come forth. Come out. What does that dead body do? Walked out of that grave. That's a different kind of power than you and I have. I don't have that power. And so here's what you and I need to understand. If we're going to be unashamed as we go and we engage our community and we share the gospel, we must be people who rest in God's power so that when I go and I share the gospel message, it's not up to me as to whether or not someone's going to respond the way that I think they should or shouldn't. The power of God will do what the power of God needs to do. And that's enough. And so my job is simply to go and be faithful and speak, and it is the power. The power is coming out through the Holy Spirit, and He will use it as He sees fit. This is how we can be unashamed. The transforming power of my life and every person who has ever known or will know Jesus Christ is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, If any man is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. The old has gone. It has passed away, and the new has come. You want to know, I think, the greatest miracle that ever occurs, as as incredible as it was that Lazarus was raised from the dead, as incredible as it was when Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons, I believe that the greatest miracle that occurs is something that we often have the privilege of witnessing. It is when a heart that is rebellious towards God a heart that loves itself, a heart that is satisfied and happy in sin, suddenly sees the light and is changed in an instant. And that heart no longer wants to live for itself. That heart no longer wants to live in rebellion to God. Suddenly, that life is made new. And they say, I want Jesus. I don't want my way. I want to live for Him. That is a miracle, friends. I can't change my heart. I've tried. You can't change your heart much less change someone else's, but the God of the universe can and does and will if we will be unashamed. And so I just want us to remember this. I have never granted anyone spiritual life, but I've seen God do it as a pastor countless times. And it is His power, it is not mine. And as we go, we must remember time and time and time and time again throughout history, God has done it. He has taken rebellious people. He's taken broken marriages. He's taken addicted people. He's given them new hearts. He's given them new life, and he's dramatically and radically changed those lives. And who am I to be quiet? Who am I to be ashamed of that? That's a wonderful thing. Why wouldn't I pass that on? We must recognize and rest in the power of God. But I think the other really practical thing that we can do and must do, is that we need to be clear on the gospel message. We need to have great clarity about the gospel. Here's where I get that. When Paul says that he is unashamed of the gospel, I believe he has a very, very specific idea in mind. The gospel is not some sort of nebulous, spiritual stuff that's out there when he's writing that. No, Paul has a very specific message that he's thinking about. You say, well, Michael, how do you know that? I want you to leave your finger right here in Romans 1 and flip over just a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15. If you're someone who writes 
or underlines in your Bible, you might underline these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. In very compact fashion, in these verses, Paul explicitly provides a very concise definition of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read it to you. It says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. There it is. He's specifically saying it. Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. Here we go. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And we're going to stop there, but he goes on. And see, what Paul is doing in verses 1 and 2 is he's saying, the gospel demands a response. You have to respond to it. You received it. You're standing in it. There's something you have to to participate in. In. There's something that you have to, to do. You don't earn it, but you receive it. But then he says this. He says the gospel message is what? Jesus came. He died, and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he's repeating that phrase in accordance with the Scriptures because he's saying Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Jesus did it. He really was the Messiah. And so in very compact fashion, he provides a definition of the gospel. Here's what I want us to do for just a few minutes in, in the remaining time that we have. Many of you have probably already heard this before. These four ideas that I'm going to share with you, these four categories of the gospel message are not unique to me. They're not new to me. In fact, they are in a book at our Faith at Home Center. If you would like to pick up a copy, it's a very small book, very readable book. On your way out, you can do that. But what I want us to do is just look at four categories that I believe every Christian can intelligently speak about. Four categories that will help us be clear on the gospel. Be clear on the gospel message. Number one, God. We start with God. What do we know about God? Well, there's a lot of things we could say. He's all-powerful. He's Trinitarian. He's Father, Son, Spirit. There's a lot of things we can say, but I think two things are crucial as we're trying to communicate the gospel message. Number one, God is creator. He's the creator God. He owns everything that, that we see, taste, touch, smell, hear, experience in life. He owns it. Not only is he the creator God, he's also holy God. He is a holy creator. And so that means he's perfect. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly just. Everything that he does, every decision that he makes is always the best. It is good, right, and completely loving constantly. That is who he is. It is a part of his nature. And because of that, he's set apart. He's different. So he is the holy creator. Then... The next category would be man, us. What do we know about humanity? I think there are two things we can safely say. Number one, we know that we are created, right? I didn't put this earth here and neither did you. I'm going to be gone and the earth is going to live on, just like that man said on the mountains. These mountains have been here long before us and they'll be here long after us. We are created. We are finite. But then secondly, we also know this. We're not holy. You see, God is the holy creator. We are the unholy created. And we have a problem. And you know it just as well as I, that problem is sin. And you don't have to go very far. You can look at the argument that you had with your spouse, maybe on the way to church this morning, right? We're sinful people. All of us are. 
We look at the news, we know that the world is a broken place, that things are not right, not good, not fair, not just. We have to look no further than one of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not lie. That's me. I'm a liar. And so are you. We've all lied. And so we know that we have an issue. We have a problem. We don't deserve relationship with this holy creator. We are the unholy created. So how do I get the relationship back? How can I have a right relationship with God Almighty? The answer is, as you well know, Jesus, which is the third category. Jesus. So we have God, we have mankind, and we have Christ. We have Jesus. And Jesus came, and just as Paul said it right here, this is kind of the the perfect summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. The message is this. Jesus was God in the flesh. He came. He lived perfectly. He did what you and I could never do. He never sinned. He didn't have a sin nature. He loved everyone wonderfully. He showed us exactly what it looks like to live the life that we're supposed to live. And then he stood in our place. He took the cross, and he died, and he rose again because... He never sinned because death had no hold on him. And in doing so, he defeated sin and he conquered death, our two biggest problems. And in doing so, he made it possible for us, for any who would believe, as it says in Romans 1.16, whoever would believe to have salvation through him. You see, there's a temptation today because we live in such a non-confrontational culture. The temptation is to stop there. Temptation is to say, here's God, here's man, here's Christ. Do with that what you will and walk away. But Paul makes it explicit in the first part of those verses in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. He says, you received the gospel, you believed it, and you're standing in it now. And so there is a necessary response. You see, you can hear the gospel, and you can understand the gospel, and you can know the gospel, and you can still go to hell. You have to receive it. You have to respond in faith, and you have to follow Jesus. And I think the way that we can summarize those, those ideas is very simply this. Three words. Trust, turn, and follow. I need to trust Jesus. I need to trust that he was exactly everything that the Bible says he is, that he really was God's son, that he really does love me, and that the only way that I can be forgiven, the only way that I can be made right with God is to trust in him. Absolutely. Believe. Trust then I need to turn. I need to turn away from living for myself, and I need to start going a new direction. I need to turn and live for Jesus. I need to let him be the king of my life. I need to leave my sin behind. It's not that I'm never going to sin again. I will, but I don't love it anymore. I don't live for it anymore. It's not what has captivated my heart. Jesus has captivated my heart. And now I'm going to follow from this day forward. Jesus is the king of my life, not me. And so Jesus is the one who I live for. We need to turn, we need to trust, we need to follow. And in doing so, we can give ourselves confidence to be unashamed when we're asked that question. We've all had this experience. Raise your hand if you've been with me. You're in school, you're in grade school, and the teacher calls on you. And if you were me, if you were like me, it's math. You weren't very good at math, and they say, Michael, what's the answer? I don't know, teacher. That's a shameful experience, right? That's not fun. That doesn't feel good. Here's what we can do. Again, it's not ultimately about us, but we can participate with God. We can work with Him as we hide His Word in our heart, as we work to, to think clearly about the gospel. 
we can say when someone says, what do you believe? We can say, I know what I believe. And I'm going to share it with you right now. We can have confidence and we can be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is who we are called to be. This is what we are called to do. This is why Paul was the way that he was. He went on mission trip after mission trip after mission trip and eventually was killed and died for this message. And so the last thing that I just want us to see and remember is this. Why is Paul writing this letter? He's writing this letter because he's on a mission. You see, the gospel gives us a mission to not be quiet. And so I met a, a man recently from the United Kingdom. I was on a trip this week. I uh, met a brother in Christ over in the UK. And he was talking about the, the culture there and how we have some animosity and despondency in our culture, but it's on a different level over there. And he was talking about these two ships to kind of illustrate it. He said, you know, there's two ships titled the Queen Elizabeth. One is... The Queen Elizabeth, the battleship, that was the first ship, and it was mighty and strong and powerful. And then there's also another Queen Elizabeth that's a little newer, and it's Queen Elizabeth, the cruise ship. And he said, you know, on Queen Elizabeth, the cruise ship, what happens is literally 2% of the people on the ship do 100% of the work. The other 98% are there for one reason. Me. Do whatever they want to do. Have fun. To relax. Take it easy. They are preoccupied with self. But not so on the Queen Elizabeth, the battleship. You see, every person on that ship has a mission. Every person on that ship has a purpose. And every person on that ship shares the load. They work together for the sake of the mission, friends. Here's the question I want to ask you today. Are you on the cruise ship? Or are you on the battleship? When you walk out of this room and you go to your work and you go to your family and you go to your peers and your friends, what characterizes the way that you live? Are you unashamed of the gospel? Because I believe much more convincing than any ad campaign, much more convincing than than even an invitation to church, is a Christian who walks out of this room and goes to their friends, goes to their families, goes to their peers and says, I'm unashamed and I want you to know my God. I'm unashamed and I want you to know the one who died for me because he loves me in spite of myself and he loves you too and you can have the freedom that I have. I want you to know that. That is so much more convincing than anything else that we can do. And so I just want to encourage you, friend, if you're a Christian, live unashamed. If you're here today and you don't know this God, you don't know the one that I'm talking about, you don't have a relationship with him, know that this message is the power of God to you today. If you will believe, you too can be saved. just want to ask everyone to, to bow their heads for just a moment. And just to ask yourself this question, where has the message met me today? What is it that God has spoken to my heart? Maybe I've been carrying around some, some baggage. Maybe I'm a person that knows Christ, I know Jesus but I've been living with some sort of guilt for some time now, or maybe I'm stuck in some secret sin and I want to be free from that sin, know that today's the day you can do that. 
Maybe you're here and you've realized, yeah, maybe I have been a little embarrassed about the gospel. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to help you become unashamed. Or maybe you're here and just like I've said, you've realized, I don't know this God relationally. I don't know him personally. He's not my king. I would invite you in just a moment to come down and meet me. I would love the opportunity to pray with you. I'd love the opportunity to introduce you to this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'd love the opportunity, even if you're a Christian and you're struggling today, I'd the chance to pray with you. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a reminder of this gospel. But before we do that, I just didn't feel right that, that we could talk about the goodness of the gospel and the power of God and not give someone a chance to respond. And We're going to sing only one verse. If the Lord is speaking to you this morning, I will be available down front. I would love the chance to pray with you. Please stand and prepare to sing.